Amen. Amen. What a wonderful time of worship. And, and those words there, I want to reiterate, because that's what I'm asking you to do this morning, is just completely subject your life, just completely surrender your life, I should say, to Jesus Christ. And what I want to talk about this morning is the destruction within. That's the destruction within ourselves, not just as people, as in corporately as a church, as a family. Because these things will work in, in, in a family, a, a biological family. It'll work, these things happen in a workplace and they happen in our church family, in everything. But if we give our lives and give our hearts to God and ask Him to speak what's true to us, these obstacles that we're going to look at this morning won't seem so insurmountable. Be, we'll be able to, to defeat them with Jesus Christ. And it's the destruction from within. And I've, I've, I've told you that's from Nehemiah chapter 5. I asked you to, to look at it earlier. The text is not quite as long this morning, so I'm going to ask us if we would to stand to our feet in the honor of God's Word this morning as we read from Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. And this is what it has to say. This is the words of Nehemiah as God has appointed him to write. He says, Now there was a great outcry of the people and their wives, their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, We are sons and our daughters are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were others who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. And there were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. And we are helpless because of the fields and the vineyards belong to others. Then I was very angry. And when I heard their outcry, and I heard these words, I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, You are exacting usury, each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. I said to them, We, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now, sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. Don't you love it when somebody's like that? You just can't find a word to say because of God's word. He goes on to say in verse 9, Again I ask, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of God, our, uh, in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? And likewise, I, my brothers and my servants, are lending them money and grain. Please let us leave off this usury or the interest. Please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also the hundredth part of the money grain, the new wine, and the oil that you were exacting from them. Then they said, we will give it back and require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I called the priests and took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. I also shook out the front of my garment and said, thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and they praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. And from that day forward, I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 
For twelve years, neither I nor my kinsmen had eaten the governor's food allowance. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides forty shekels of silver. Servants domineered the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also applied myself to the work on this wall. We did not buy any land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Again, there were... There were at my table 150 Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. In verse 18 it says, Now that which was prepared for us each day was one ox and six choice sheep. Also birds were prepared for me, and once in ten days all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the governor's food allowance, because the servitude was heavy on this people. Remember me, O God, for good according to all that I have done for this people. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I know that this text, is, according to what we've been looking at the last several weeks, seems a little out of place. But it's yet it's so fitting, as we will see this morning. I pray that you will point that out to us, Father. I pray that you don't let my efforts be in vain. Father, I pray that you don't allow my efforts to be what stand true this morning, but your truth and your word. Use me, Father, to this end so everyone in the sound of my voice, whether they're here present with me and with you or whether they're listening by streaming and online, let this touch the hearts of everybody that hears, Father, so that we can understand better how to serve you so that we don't self-destruct and our churches around us don't self-destruct because of our own personal gain and our own selfishness. Let this be a lesson to us, Father, that fits perfectly in this text. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. As I said, this, this does seem out of place because we're talking about something totally different here than what we've looked at the last four weeks. Totally different than what we looked at last four weeks. When you stand on God's Word and you stand tall in the face of the enemy, then the enemy will begin to look for other means to attack you. Do you know that? He's not going to stop. He just might change his strategy. He said, well, he's not using this or that against me anymore, but he is using something. So sometimes when we stand tall, or most of the times when we stand tall, the enemy's not going to give up. He's just going to keep trying in a different way. You'll notice a very different theme in chapter 5 here, as I've already said, compared to what's been going on in the first four chapters. The enemy has been trying to defeat Nehemiah using outside resources. Now let's look at those. Those outsized resources were in the way of Sambala, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab. You three guys. There's no mention of them in verse 5 or in chapter 5. They're, they're completely out of the picture now. But they will return. But right now, they, it's, it seems like they've either taken a vacation, maybe they've gone to the bathroom and they can't get back out. I don't know. But they're not mentioned here. But it doesn't make the text less important. It doesn't mean that we've gone off course here because it's very fitting as you're going to see that the enemy had switched his strategy. Now who's the enemy? It wasn't Sambala, Tobiah, and Geshem. It was Satan. It was, it, was the, it was Satan who was putting all these thoughts and ideas and the demons from hell that were putting all these thoughts and ideas in these men's minds to divert them from the truth of God and try to, and try to destroy the great work that Nehemiah had been called to by God. That was the true enemy. And we in here this morning always look at sometimes our brothers and sisters as the enemy, and we're not. 
It's Satan who puts these evil things in our minds. He can't seem to, the enemy can't seem to break Nehemiah through these men, so he switches to a different offense. When you watched football yesterday, how many of you watched college football yesterday? I mean, I loved it. Even just college football, but you might, it might be any sport that you have. Think about this. When you watched college football yesterday, or any other sport that you might have been watching, and what the coach is doing doesn't seem to be working, a lot of times in the second half, you'll see him come out with a whole different approach. He'll come out with a whole different strategy because what he was doing wasn't working. Now, sometimes that comes in the way of personnel change. He'll switch out a quarterback or a tight end or he'll change out his linebackers because the defense isn't doing too good. The cornerbacks might not be able to keep up, so he switches them out. He tries to do something different with his offense to attack the people that he's up against, the other team. Sometimes that comes in the way of personnel. Sometimes it comes in the way of strategy. Maybe different play calls. Maybe, maybe trying something a little bit different. Maybe some different formations in the backfield. Maybe the defense switches from man to man to zone. But there's all kind of situations and scenarios that the coach does because what he's doing isn't working. And that's what Satan was up against here. The enemy, it wasn't working. He could not shake Nehemiah with these three men, so he decided to change his strategy. That's why chapter 5 is so fitting right here, because we're going to see a complete change in the way Nehemiah is attacked than what we've seen in the first four chapters. Now, what that means for us is this, is that when you notice the enemy, when you notice the enemy changing the way he attacks you, or us as a church, or whatever it might be, your family, your work, what that means is that what he was doing wasn't working. Does that make sense? So, so my point is to you. My point is this, that when he changes strategy, know that you're winning. Because he's had to change strategy because he can't get to you. Why? Because you've, stand, you've stood tall and you've stood diligent in the work of God that he's called you to do and God's going to get you through it just like he did Nehemiah. Now we see a different attack. So don't give up. When he changes his strategy, when the enemy changes his strategy and he focuses on you as an individual, and maybe he'll switch to your children to attack you, maybe he'll switch to your co-workers to attack you, and sometimes even your church family to attack you, when he uses other means to attack you, doesn't mean that you've lost, it just means that he's not doing a very good job because you're doing it together with God. So be encouraged when he changes his strategy. Laugh in his face and say, you know what? The last thing didn't work. This one's not going to work either. Satan de de so Satan decides in this, in this scenario, he decides to change his attack. And from this time, he was using outside resources. Now he's going to use inside resources. He's going he's gonna, to, it wasn't that he put a mole in there to, to work against the people inside. He didn't stick somebody and plant somebody in there. No, he used the hearts and the minds of the very people that Nehemiah was called to help. And we're going to look at that. And I think you already see where I'm going with it from the text we read. He uses the human heart that is filled with selfishness to attack the efforts of Nehemiah. As humans, we are selfish by nature. We want what we want because in our minds, what we really want is the most important anyway, isn't it? What we want is really what everybody else should want. That's how it should go. But that's just nothing but pure selfishness. It's that way in our homes. It's that way in our families. This is just the human mind at work. It's the human mind at work. It works in our families. It, it destroys our workplaces. 
and it even, it even can destroy our churches, especially our churches. Now, why do I say especially our churches? The reason I say especially our churches is because this is the one place where selfishness and our own self-gain should be bridled. It's the only one place where it shouldn't take place, but it does. So let's look at how the enemy uses our selfishness and our own agendas to destroy us. And the first one is this. I want to look at the cry from within. And, and what we've read here, I've it up into three sections. All the, all the verses through the whole chapter. I'm not going to leave anything out. First thing that we're going to look at is the cry within. And you might be thinking, boy, did he use that word cry for a reason? Because we can, we can say these were a bunch of crybabies. Um, my wife calls me a crybaby all the time. Doesn't make it true. That's just what she likes to say. So when y'all see her, tell him he's not really a crybaby. She's just really lying to herself, okay? Y'all make sure y'all tell her that. But she does that jokingly, but we use that word cry. We'll tell people at work, work all the time, oh, quit your crying and do your job. We'll hear things like that. Or we'll jokingly say to our spouse, you big crybaby. Or we'll jokingly say to one of our buddies, man, quit your crying. Suck it up and move on. That's what we tell them. My wife likes to tell me sometimes. That's what she tells me. And I don't think she's using buttercup in a very intimate way. I think she's being a little facetious there, but I don't know. I hadn't figured it out yet, but I think she is. But we say these things, but that word cry, there was a cry within. Because look what it says in very first, the very first verse. What does it say? There was what? There was an outcry among the people. So there was an outcry. Now this wasn't necessarily that they were crying, boo-hooing, but they were upset. There were some things going on that they didn't think was right. Now here's the thing, they weren't right. The things that were going on weren't right. And the enemy uses this against them to try to destroy them from within. Remember, he's no longer using outside sources in the way of these three men, these Arab men. What he's using now, he has focused on the people. So there is a cry from within. What he does is he, he tries to get them to focus on the enemy and not the family. Now that was my next sub-point, is to focus on the family and not the enemy. That is our job, to focus on the family and not the enemy. As a lot of times we get our focus off of the family, we get our focus of what God has called us to do, and we put it on the enemy because the enemy just... He, he just bugs us so much that we can't get it off our mind. You know what I'm talking about. You've been through a struggle and it's all you can think about. You come to church, you're defeated because of what you're up against. Your witness is defeated because of what you're up against. Your joy is defeated because of what you're up against. Your peace and your understanding is destroyed because of what you're up against. You see, the issue or the attack becomes bigger then the joy and the peace and, 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 and all the things that we have with God, they become bigger than that. Those struggles become bigger than that. And that's what was happening here. Man, Nehemiah was doing a great work. The people were doing a great work, but now they focused on something else, their own selfishness. And that's why verse 5 fits so fittingly here. It's that you have to focus on the family. We have Christians all the time that are pointing uh, fingers at one another, our sisters and our brothers. We have them pointing at leadership in the churches. And I'm, I'm talking about churches worldwide. We're pointing the finger at leaderships in churches. Sometimes they're doing things wrong. Sometimes they're not on purpose. Sometimes they just make the wrong decision or the wrong call. It's just a simple mistake. Other times they are purposely doing things. But, but we can't sit here and, and try to make everybody believe that every leader in every church around this globe is absolutely wrong all the time and they're doing it for their own selfish gain. There are ministers out there that do that and leaders in churches that do that. 
But for everyone that's trying to do that, I believe that there are 10,000 men who are righteous and holy and are going to be obedient to God. But fingers at one another. This is something Christians need to stop doing. This is what the Jewish people started. They started pointing fingers. And the enemy gets, he's forgotten about. We don't even think about the enemy when the enemy's actually at work in the midst of the people. This is very dangerous in the church. We begin to see each other as the enemy. The enemy is the one putting this in our heads against one another, not us. This is what the enemy does. That's why I said in my introduction, why do I say especially to churches? Because this is the one place that those things should not happen. So we have focus on the family, not the, not the, not the enemy. Also, we have to understand that there are different strokes from selfish folks. You like how I did that with that little cliche there? There are different strokes from different folks. You know the old saying, different strokes for different folks. We're all different. We're, we're all different people. We have different personalities. We have different dispositions. We have different political outlooks. We have, we have different professional outlooks. We have a, a, a difference in social outlooks. We, we are just different people. That's why God called the Jewish people peculiar people. We, we're different. We look different. We act different. We, we have different shapes. and We're in different heights. And the one thing that's always amazed me is that God could give us two ears, two eyes, a mouth and a nose with two nostrils, yet we all have the same makeup, but we all look different. I, how does God do that? We all have the same facial features, yet we all look different. That's just only something God can do. I mean, I wouldn't be able to think that you'd be able to arrange your face in so many different ways, but I'm going to tell you, when, when, when I better not go there. But we, we, we just, we're just different people. So we have different strokes, but a lot of us are very selfish folks. It's the human mind. I'm not pointing the finger at anyone. I'm just trying to tell you that this is what God's trying to point out to us. There's different groups of people that are pointed out in this scripture right here. I'm, I'm going to mention some of them to you. There's different groups of people here. There were people who were landless, who had no land, and they were hungry. In verse 2, look what it says in verse 2. Look back at your scripture, keep it close to you. We are sons and our daughters are many. Let us get grain that we may eat and live. They didn't have anything. They couldn't afford to buy anything. They were the poorest of the poor. They had nothing. They couldn't even sell their land or their property to get something to eat. They were poor. The next group of people is this. There were people selling or mortgaging their land to buy food. They were a little bit better than the first group. They at least had some land that they could mortgage. But what was happening is, is their sisters and brothers who they were mortgaging their property to was charging them interest, that word usury there. They were charging them interest. They were taking advantage. They were exploiting them, their own people. You think, goodness, we don't do that in the church. Yeah, we do sometimes, actually. We take their money, but we can exploit people in different ways. We can point the fingers in different ways. What I'm pointing out to you here is there's different people in this story. There's different groups of people. The third group is people who couldn't pay taxes and had to sell their children into slavery. Whoa, wait a minute, Pastor. Are you saying they actually sold their children into slavery? Let's look at God's Word and let's see what it says. Don't take my word for it. In verse, verse 4 it says, Also there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax. Now we're talking how about just buying food here. We're talking about taxes being paid. To the king, not to Nehemiah, to the king, not to the governor, to the king. So they say, they say that we've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, like our children's children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some daughters are being forced into bondage. Isn't that horrible? 
When they couldn't afford to pay their taxes, they would have to give their children up to be slaves for the king. And he can keep them as long as he wants and do with them whatever he wants and work them for as long as he wants. That's horrible. You might think, well, that's just a figure of speech. No, this went on. This was true. This is what they did. This was their society. This is how they did things. Could you imagine having to sell your child into slavery just so you could put food on your table? It was horrible. And then there's the fourth group of people, and that's the people who were doing the exploiting. That's the people who were doing this. And, and sometimes they were outside the Jewish, like the king, outside the Jewish people. And, and most of them were the Jewish people that were doing these things to their own people. And they began to complain and murmur against one, one another, so it was from within. This was a legitimate complaint, however, so we have to look at what started it all. Okay, the legit, there was a legitimate complaint that the people come and said, hey, they're charging us all this money. They're taking stuff from us and they won't give it back. They're charging us interest. Man, we can't afford to live, and sooner or later we're going to be the poorest of the poor, and these people who've got to step ahead are going to become richer and richer with our stuff, with the hard work of my back. So what had happened was, Nehemiah decided to put a stop to all of this. But it was a legitimate complaint. But we have to stop and think, okay, it was a legitimate complaint. What's your, story? What's your point on this whole story? The, story? the point is this, is that the people that were doing this to them had selfishness and their own agenda on their own mind. It was the enemy putting greed in the hearts of those people that were exploiting others. They weren't necessarily the enemy. It was the, it, the enemy was Satan who was putting all these evil thoughts in their mind, making them greedy, wanting them to exceed by the hard work of someone else. That's what the true enemy was. And the people began to complain. And that's what happened. The enemy uses against the greedy ones by causing the poor to lash out against them. You see the, the struggle going on here? He puts it in their heart to be greedy, and then he uses this group of people to attack the greedy people. And guess what? They're all... They're all Jewish. This wasn't supposed to be going on. Even Moses addressed that when God told Moses to write these things down and, and that you're not to charge your brother or sister interest. They weren't supposed to be doing that. That was illegal on God's, in God's Word. According to God's Word, it was legal. They weren't supposed to be doing that. So they weren't... And, and you know the year of Jubilee, that 50th year, you know all the land and all the, all, all the property was to be reverted back to the people that originally owned it and all the loans were to be forgiven. That's what the year of Jubilee was all about. They were supposed to give all of that back. It, it balanced the economy. I won't get into that, but the enemy was being destroyed by their own people. The enemy was using the two different groups to, to destroy each other. And then there's different strokes, fame, same family. We're all, we all have different personalities, as I said. But we also we all have different outlooks. But you know what? One, one other thing that we do have in common? We all have the same enemy, and that's Satan. We all have the same one. We might have different outlooks, but we think we have different enemies. Well, I think the pastor's the enemy, or the deacon's the enemy, or this teacher's the enemy, or that leader's the enemy, or that leader's the enemy. It's not the same leader or the same enemy is the one that we're all up against, and that's Satan, the devil. And we can't mention that in church anymore. Troy, this is 2018. Saying Satan or saying the devil, it sounds so childish. That's not really... That's what we're up against. That's what we're facing. And you go to a lot of churches today, they won't mention Satan. They won't mention hell. They won't mention re re repentance. But it's... 
no matter how much we won't mention it, it's still true. We have the one common factor that we all have the same enemy. We also all have the same cause. What is that? To spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we all have the same enemy, and it's not each other, and we all have the same cause. And that is to glorify God and make disciples of Christ. Now, I know that that's our mission statement here at Holmes Avenue, but my point is, is that that's what we do as Christians. Look, look what it says in, and we put it up here, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Of course, we all know that. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's what he's telling us to do. We all have that same common goal, and that is to glorify God. That is to glorify God, because after all, we're all the same family, right? Aren't we all the same family? Listen to what it says in Ephesians 4.25, Therefore, laying aside falsehood. Falsehood doesn't mean just lying. It means all injustices. So it could mean exacting uh, um, interest from your brothers and sisters. It could be exploiting them, taking anything that's false, anything that's not of God, that's not true, to lay it aside. And he says, lay aside all falsehood. Speak the truth, uh, each one of you, with his neighbors, for we are all members, what? Of one another. We're all children of God. So let's look at the second thing. That was the, the cry from within. Satan begins to use these people to, to, to attack one another from within to, to cause a, a, an implosion, if you will. But there's also the conflict from, from within. Not only is there was an outcry from within, but now there's a conflict. Now how do we know this? Let's look at some of the language that's used here. The first thing is this, is that conflict begins with anger. And I'm glad God showed me this because God kind of laid this out for me and I was reading a lot of different commentaries and things and God started showing me a different way to approach this when I was saying it, when I wanted to make this point. But there's, there's the conflict from within. Conflict begins with anger. Look what it says in verse 6. In the second part, look what it says in verse 6. What does he say? What does Nehemiah say? He says, then I was what? I'm just angry. I'm very angry at these things that I'm hearing. He says, I'm very angry. So conflict brings about anger. It brings about anger. Now, there's two ways of looking at anger. There's, there's the sinful anger that we just blow up, don't care what, who we say to whoever and belittle whoever we want. And then there's the righteous, indignant anger, which is what Nehemiah was experiencing. In Ephesians 4.26, I told you what Ephesians 4.25 said that we speak truth to one another with his neighbors. We are all one, we are all one uh, members of one another. But listen to what the very next verse says. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let your sun go down on your, do not let the sun go down on your anger. So there is that righteous indignant anger that you have to control and you have to do something about. Now you might get angry and you say, well, I'll just forget about it in a few days I'll be over it. Was that going to do any good for the people? If Nehemiah... You know, at least if I came to you, you said, you know, I'm angry with you for what you did. And I just, you know, I'm just give a f say anything to her, I'm going to let it lie. What's, what's going to happen? It's going to fester in me, isn't it? And you know, she might be angry at me the same thing. But brothers and sisters in Christ, we come to one another. And we say, you know what, this, this, this upset me. Let's, let's talk about this. And we've been doing all along. And we look at each other and we realize that neither one of us are the enemy, but Satan's the enemy. But we have that righteous, indignant anger that we go to one another and we talk this over. And this is what Nehemiah, this is what Nehemiah had towards those exploiting their brothers and sisters. He wasn't angry that he wanted to go in and start 
and, and start hanging people and killing people. It wasn't it at all. He wanted to right the wrong. Why? Because he wanted the people that were doing the wrong thing to see the right way to do things so that they become followers of God or even closer with God. They, they may have worshipped God every day. Didn't mean they trusted Him. We have people in our churches all over the world today that are worshipping God, but they don't trust Him and they still have not surrendered their life to Him. But this is the type of anger that, that Nehemiah had. Nehemiah had not been there long enough to see these problems. Remember, they built the wall within 52 days. They're still building the wall. He hadn't been there long enough to see this. He didn't know this was a problem until people started coming to them to him. A lot of our pastors and churches we assign to a new church, we don't see a lot of the problems until we get there, and after three or four weeks, people start to come to us. So, wow, I had no idea this was going on. Those things happen. But anger should bring about consultation. So conflict brings, brings anger. Anger should bring about consultation. Look what he says in verse 7. I'll go through these, try to move through these quickly. Look what it says in verse 7. A lot of teachings in, Mer- in, in Jeremiah or in Nehemiah. In verse 7, what does he say? I consulted with myself. That was the first thing we need to do when we're angry about a conflict. Consult with yourself. Okay, let me get these facts straight. Let me make sure I have all my I's dotted, my T's are crossed. Let me make sure that I have everything right before I consult others. So Nehemiah, what does he do? He consults with himself. Because what does anger do? It should, and you notice I put that word there, should. It should. It doesn't always. But anger should bring about consultation with yourself first, And then we think it over, we straighten out the facts in our heads, and then we consult with others as needed. Look what it says in verse 8. And let's follow the pattern. These are not my ideas. This is what God has laid out. Look what it says in verse 8. Got some teaching going on here. I said to them, we according to our ability. He said, I said this to them because he had had spoken before a great assembly at the the end of verse 7. And he said, this is what I said to them. So he took that, he straightened that out in his own head after he consulted with himself, and then he moved on. Matthew chapter 18 tells us to do that if we have aught with our brother. Who do we go to? That brother. Not to the brother's neighbor, and not to the stranger, and not to the deacon. You go to that brother, and you straighten it out. And if it doesn't happen, what what does Matthew chapter 18 teach us to do? Go back and get somebody else, and hopefully you'll listen if they're truly doing something wrong. So we have to consult. Anger should bring about consultation, not separation. God's purpose, uh, uh, consultation should bring correction. So anger should should bring consultation. Consultation should bring correction. Look what it says in verse 9. In verse 9, listen to what he says. Again, God's pattern, not mine. Again I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. You should not walk in the... uh, Um, Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? He's saying you're destroying your own witness to the other nations because of what you're doing. So consultation brings about correction. What's the whole purpose of going to your brother? To point out their wrongdoing, right? So what good is consultation if it doesn't bring about correction? What are we going to do about this? Righteous indignant anger to go and say let's let's consult over this and let's correct it nehemiah he pointed out love when he started talking to these people if you read through the next verses let me tell you some of the things he pointed out he pointed out the love that they should have for one another he pointed out the word of god and god's purpose for his people 
He pointed out, like I just said, the witness that they were portraying to other nations because it didn't look very becoming of them to be a follower of God and to be treating one another this way. So he says, it's destroying your witness. That's why a lot of our churches are in messes because we're attacking one another and other people see it. And then we think, well, we're not unified as a church. Well, probably not because we're attacking one another. So, and, and, and then let, let me go on to say, not only does he talk about the witness to each other, but he talks about personal accountability and then he talks about God's judgment. This is what he to the table in his consultation. He says, this is what we need to be doing. And this is all according to what God says. And he knew his Bible. He went back. He knew the old laws. He pointed it all out for him. He said, you're not supposed to be doing this. God did not ordain this. And he pointed it out. Now, now as consult, consultation should bring about correction, correction should bring about repentance. When you're corrected, what do you have to do? When somebody points it out to you, what's your responsibility? To repent. That means to stop doing it. That means to change your mind and say, you know what? I was doing it wrong. I'm going to start doing it right. So correction should bring about repentance. Let's look at them again. Correction should bring repentance. Or the first one, conflict brings anger. Anger should bring consultation. Consultation should bring correction. Correction, correction should, be, should bring repentance. And repentance requires accountability. That's the last one. Correction requires accountability. Let's look in verse 13. Again, God's pattern, not mine. What does he say? I also took out the front of my garment and said, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possession who does not fulfill this promise. Even though, even thus, may he be shaken out and emptied. That was a, that was a, they did that. He, he lived that, but it was, a, it symbolized something. Wasn't that he had crumbs in his lap? And that's what we do when we get up from the table, right? I do. Because I get it all over me, man. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't ruffling out some crumble. What he was doing, it was a show. It, was a, it, was, it, was a, it symbolized what he was saying was, I'm going to shake out my garment, and if anyone in you continue on the practices that you're doing, may God shake you out and take everything from you and leave it laying on the ground. Just so you know what that, what that language means here. It was, it was a symbolism. It, it, it meant something. So he says, may God do to you like I'm doing with this garment. He'll shake you out and leave you with nothing. Now let's look at the rest of 13. Because what did I, what's the point? Is that, is that conflict brings, uh, 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 repentance brings accountability. Look what it says in verse 13 at the end. It says, and all the assembly said, amen. What does amen be, mean? So let it be. That's what it means. So let it be. In other words, they're saying, I agree with you. This is what we need to do. So let it be. And, and they praised the Lord. And then the people did according to this promise. They held themselves accountable. Repentance should always bring about self-accountability. And if you can't do it yourself, find an accountability partner. The, fourth, the, the, the third point is this. And I'll close. Musicians, you can come forward. I'm very close to being done. There's the contrast from within. You know, why did you use the word contrast here? I could have used the word compare, the comparison from within. But when you compare things, you're really sizing them up side by side. And you're looking, and you're looking at some insignificant differences between the two. If you're on Facebook, there's a big thing now. They keep sending these things out that says, notice the differences in the two pictures. Drives me nuts. And you think, well, you must just click them off. No, it drives me nuts because I sit there and try to find the differences. 
It just sucks me in somehow. But the word contrast means something different. It, it means to look at things intricately and look at the major differences between the two. And that's what I wanted to do. The contrast from within. Because all of this destruction was coming from within. Remember, Sambala, Tobiah, Geshem, they weren't even mentioned in this chapter. We've taken a totally different turn and the enemy has taken a totally different uh, reproach from what he was doing. Nehemiah did the right thing for the right reasons. How often do you see that today? How often would you have seen it in this day and time? Not often. You see other kings and other leaders, other rulers, other governors, other mayors, you know what they were doing? They were taking from the people, exploiting them so they could live a lush life. They wanted all the good things of life while the people grew poorer and poorer. They wanted it for themselves. That's not what Nehemiah was about. He did the right thing for the right reason. So there's a contrast there. He was doing things that other people weren't. That's why pastors are looked down upon today because we refuse to do the things that the world does. And we refuse to do them the same way. And the world doesn't like us because of it. And i got news for you. They don't like you because of it because you're going to do things the right way. But that's just to show that you're out front. Now, now let's look at some of those things that are contrasted. Sometimes we make the wrong decisions, not because we're selfish, but because we just missed something. Maybe we didn't have enough information. Maybe we acted hastily. Sometimes we just mess up, but we don't do it purposely for our own personal gain. That's not what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah didn't become a burden to his people, as other leaders would do. Look what it says in verse 14. From the day that I was appointed to be their governor, look at what he says. He says, for 12 years that I was governor... I didn't take anything from the governor's food allowance. Nothing. I worked for everything that I had. The people should get it. That's very different than their day and time. He was doing something completely different. That's why I use the word contrast. Let's, let's go on. Leaders took advantage of the people for their own personal gain. I'm sorry. I, 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 no, no, that's right. Leaders took advantage of the people for their own personal gain. But look at what Nehemiah does in verse 15. The former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver, and even their servants domineered the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. He did something completely different than what other people were doing. This is the difference between a godly man and an unrighteous man. You know, Paul did the same thing with the church at Corinth. He refused to take their money. They were poor and they were struggling. He refused to take their money. He says, no, I'm going to give this back to you. He did it for the good of the people. He didn't need the money. But what happened when Paul did need the money? Bonus points for one trillion points right now and the winner of this service in the next 30 seconds. What did Paul do for a living? What did he do? Yes, sir. He was a tent maker. Thank you, Tomas. He was a tent maker. You know what he did? He says, I can't take your money. You're struggling. So he went to work, and he began to build tents again, make tents, sewing them together and selling them to make a living while he preached the Word of God. That's something very different that you see in today's world. Now, some men do it, but most don't. You say, well, is this reserved just for pastors and leaders? No, this is reserved for every Christian 
that claims to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and has surrendered their life to Him. This is what we do. We do it for other people. It's not for us. Nehemiah didn't do it for himself. He did it for the people. Why? He was serving God by serving the people. So he became a tent maker. That's what Paul did. And Nehemiah refused to exploit the people. He refused. Why? Because he feared God, verse 15. The next thing that he did that was unheard of was he actually worked. Look what it says in verse 16. Look what he says. He says, also I applied myself to the work on this wall. We did not buy any land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. His resources was the people, not what they had. He encouraged the people to do the work. He didn't say, gimme, 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 and I'll pay somebody else to do it. He was a true leader, a true servant of God, and he encouraged the people to do the work themselves without any cost out of their pockets whatsoever. And that's what he did. He worked for the people. He worked with the people. He was out there building that wall too. Why? Because he wanted to lead by that example. And he also gave and he shared with others. If you look through verses 17 and 18, you'll see all those things that he said that they were given every day. This was the food that was prepared for him. But he shared it with the other 150 people, the nobles, the leaders. Nehemiah was a sharing and giving man, according to verses 17 and 18. And he led others to do the same. Notice the language here. And I'm going to end with this. Notice the language. He encouraged others and he led others to do the same thing. I'm going to back up. In verse 14, listen to what he says. He says, Nor I or my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food. He was teaching others to do the same thing and to be that servant. Verse 15, he says at the end, He says, I didn't do so because of the fear of God. He said, I also applied myself for the work on this wall. Verse 16, we did not buy any land. So he included himself with the other leaders and he was saying, I was leading them by example for them to do the same thing. To not be selfish, but to give back to the people. You see what the language is there? He didn't say, look at what I've done. He said, look what I've taught others to do. And as Christians, that's what we're called to do. So as we're closing out today, as we sing this last song, I want you to to ponder on this thought. Am I being selfish for my own personal gain or am I truly serving God so that He receives the glory? And and I want you to ask yourself this question. If every single person in this church was doing it, we'd be busting at the walls instead of asking us to pray for the empty spots in the pews. I'm not trying to point the finger and I'm not trying to browbeat, but listen to me. This is what holds us back as a congregation. This is what holds us back from being a blessing to the community. And that's our own personal agendas. Let Nehemiah be that example. Let Jesus be that example. Jesus, could you imagine? I don't want to get up there and get beat. Would you? I wouldn't want to. But he set aside all of his personal gain and said, I need to do this. Why did Jesus do it? The same reason Nehemiah did it. For the people. You and me, and what greater example to live by than Jesus Christ. Ponder those thoughts as we sing this last song.